0: Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and often misunderstood events and stories linked to Israeli history. Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Alan Fisher and Barbara Sommer, and John and Rachie Teller. And this episode is generously sponsored by Yoni and Lisa Wittner. Before we start... If you like this podcast, please go straight to Apple Podcasts and rate us a five and give us a comment. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Yalla. Let's do this. He will not Israel. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they're home. When I was in high school, and Google was barely a thing, I remember sitting in a Hebrew language class when someone first said Sabra and Shatila. There was no Wikipedia for me to leech off of and feign intelligence, so I relied on my teacher. Mara, what happened at Sabra and Shatila, I innocently asked. Her response? Nu, daikvar, yalla, which, if you're not a native Hebrew speaker, roughly translates to shut up, move on, and let's sweep it under the rug. Well. You don't need to be a clinical psychologist, though my parents are, to know that a response like that will only pique a 16-year-old's curiosity. I don't remember how I satisfied that curiosity. I loved my high school experience, but I wish learning about Saba and Shatila had been mediated by someone who could or frankly would explain it honestly. Someone who could have given me a space to think it through, ask tough questions, and arrive at my own conclusions. So. I became an educator and the more I learn and teach about Israeli history, the more I think about the Stanford prison experiment. How's that for a non sequitur? But hear me out because I promise I'm getting somewhere with this. In 1971, a Stanford psychology professor named Philip Zimbardo led a study to investigate the psychological effects of power. The study took student volunteers and assigned them arbitrarily to be either prisoners or guards. Now, the results of the study have been questioned a lot, and rightfully so. Its methodology was highly flawed, and its ethics were murky at best. Ethical and methodological qualms aside, the Stanford Prison Experiment is regularly trotted out as proof of the old adage that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. These college students were probably pretty decent, normal people. But the second the, quote, guards had a taste of power, they flipped. The study lasted less than a week. But in that time, guards began enforcing humiliating punishments on their charges. They took their roles so seriously that they began sneaking into prisoners' cells at night just to abuse them. The study disturbed a lot of people because it suggested that there's something fundamentally dark about human nature that given the smallest taste of power, even fake made up power, even the most normal, decent people will end up committing some kind of atrocity. Maybe you see where I'm going with this. See, the Jewish people spent 2000 years stateless, powerless. Our exile became a part of our liturgy, our very consciousness. Our identities, from the professions we were allowed to pursue to the clothes we were allowed to wear, were predicated on being guests in other people's lands. And we remained and remain acutely conscious of the fact that our welcome could run out at any time. Which means that for 2,000 years, we had never had to grapple with what it means to have real power. Rabbi Joseph Barisoloveitchik, a generational Talmudic mind, and the preeminent leader of modern Orthodox Judaism in the 20th century put it neatly. We never had a state. We never had political problems. Each one lived for himself. A private person cannot commit. A private person, a weak person, a persecuted person, a person who did not have any, anything to say could not commit the injustices of which, for instance, France or Germany or a feudal England committed only in the Middle Ages, of course. But... All that changed after 1948 and again after 1967, after 2000 years of exile, wandering and prayer, we had a state, which meant that quite aside from a quotidian challenge, like how do you clear a swamp or how do you feed all these immigrants, Israeli leadership had to contend with ontological questions like what the heck are we going to do with the Arabs in our borders? And even more uncomfortably, what is our responsibility? to people with less power than us. What is our responsibility as the majority? That is the story we're going to tell today. It's difficult, it's uncomfortable, and it's absolutely necessary. If we want to understand Israeli and modern Jewish history, it's a story. I wish I had been told when I was a 16 year old in Hebrew class, innocently asking without realizing it, what does it mean to have power? Our story starts in 1964. Israel is 18 years old, a veteran of two wars and countless attacks and incursions. The six day war that would triple Israeli landmass is still three years away, which means that the tiny country has far less power than it does today. And it's about to get hit with another wave of terror, courtesy of the newly formed PLO, or Palestine Liberation Organization, whose charter reads, We the Palestinian Arab people, who believe in its Arabism and its right to regain its homeland, to amass its forces and mobilize its efforts and capabilities in order to continue its struggle and to move forward on the path of holy war, al-Jihad, until complete and final victory has been attained. Just in case that wasn't clear, the PLO laid out their position as follows. Let's read it carefully. Article 17. The partitioning of Palestine and the establishment of Israel are illegal and null and void here's article 18 the claims of historic and spiritual ties between jews and palestine are not in agreement with the facts of history or with the true basis of sound statehood here's article 19 zionism is a colonialist movement in its inception aggressive and expansionist in its goal racist in its configurations and fascist in its means and aims israel is a permanent source of tension and turmoil in the Middle East in particular and to the international community in general. It was hard to not read that out loud without laughing. It's crazy. In other words, complete victory means no more Israel. It's like the anti-Semitic trifecta, deny Israel's right to exist, deny Jews historical and spiritual ties to their homeland and paint Israel as the world's permanent problem. Gosh, So it's not super surprising that the people who drafted this charter had absolutely no problem adopting terrorist tactics, which escalated when Yasser Arafat took over as chairman in 1969. Because nothing frees Palestine like murdering 11 Olympic athletes in Germany. If you're interested in hearing more about that story, make sure to check out our episode on the 1972 Munich Olympics. But the PLO wasn't just a major thorn in Israel's side. Aside from openly flouting Jordan's laws, they also tried to kill King Hussein of Jordan twice. When the Hashemite king kicked the PLO out of Jordan for good, they moved their base of operations to southern Lebanon, where they destabilized the Lebanese government and paid frequent violent house calls to their Israeli neighbors in the south. By 1978, after a particularly grisly incident in which the PLO killed a tourist, hijacked a bus, and murdered nearly 40 hostages, Israel had had enough. The IDF invaded southern Lebanon, pushing the PLO deeper into Lebanon and away from the Israeli border. When the Israelis left two months later, it was with the UN's assurance that its peacekeeping force would prevent more Palestinian attacks on Israeli civilians. As the kids used to say my long ago youth, LOL. UNIFIL, or the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon, did nothing. And PLO attacks on both Israel and the Christians and Shiites of Lebanon continued. Perhaps the most traumatic and horrifying episode of Palestinian terrorism against Israelis came the next year. If you're squeamish, you may want to skip forward by about a minute because this is rough. In 1979, the Palestine Liberation Front, or PLF, wasn't pleased about Israel's recently signed peace treaty with Egypt. So the PLF leadership sent a few infiltrators, including a 16-year-old Lebanese Druze named Samir Kuntar, into Israel with instructions to kill a police officer and abduct at least three civilians to take back to Lebanon. After murdering Officer Eliyahu Shachar, Kuntar and his accomplices broke into an apartment building in Nahariya. They kidnapped Danny Haran and his four year old daughter Einat, forcing them to the beach. Kuntar made Einat watch as he shot and then drowned her father. Then he smashed her head against a rock with the butt of his pistol. Meanwhile, Smadar Haran cowered in a crawl space in her own home her two-year-old daughter, Yael, in her arms. In an effort to keep the baby quiet, Smadar accidentally suffocated her. It's a story that could have come from Poland in 1942. In fact, Smadar's mother was a Holocaust survivor, and Smadar, the sole survivor of the attack that ripped away her young family, recounts thinking of her mother as she hid in her own home, trembling with fear. Israelis were outraged and horrified. Power? What power? And the attacks kept coming. In 1982, a Palestinian splinter group called Abu Nidal, which broke away from the PLO in 1974, ambushed Shlomo Argov, the Israeli ambassador to England, sending him into a three-month coma and disabling him for life. For Prime Minister Menachem Begin and his hawkish defense minister Ariel Sharon, the attack on Argov was the straw that broke the camel's back. IDF tanks rolled into southern Lebanon less than 72 hours later with the goal of ending these attacks. But they were rolling into a mess. Like Israel, Lebanon is complicated. And in 1982, it was buckling under seven years of internecine war. Almost 60% of Lebanese are Muslim, roughly split between Sunnis and Shia, with a sprinkling of minorities like Alawites and Ismailis. Nearly 40% of Lebanese are Christians of various stripes. Druze, Baha'i, Buddhists, Hindus, and even some Jews round out Lebanon's religious minorities. By the way, I have to add another nerd corner for this wild fact. Some Lebanese actually reject being called Arab, claiming a much earlier Phoenician identity. Google it. It's a fascinating internet rabbit hole. Anyway. After Lebanon achieved its independence from the French in 1946, the country more or less functioned. For a while, Beirut even enjoyed a reputation as the Paris of the Middle East. Sadly, that stability was short-lived. The state was largely run by Maronite Christians who had held power and influence since the days of the French, but leftists, pan-Arabists, and ardently religious Muslims were not exactly enamored of the Maronites' pro-Western government. The Palestinian refugees who streamed into the country in 48 and 67 further inflamed these tensions by 1975 the country found itself embroiled in a bloody civil war meanwhile the syrians sensing a power vacuum they could exploit began their own incursion eventually turning lebanon into a syrian puppet so to recap let's understand this it's june 1982 Begin is sick of constant PLO incursions from southern Lebanon. Defense Minister Sharon is chomping at the bit to go after the terrorists. And many Lebanese, Christian and Muslim alike are also pretty sick of the PLO, who had been gleefully wreaking havoc on Lebanon since they had moved there in 1971. What's that they say about the enemy of my enemy? It seems insane to us now, but according to Yossi klein Alevi in his book Like Dreamers, when Israel rolled into Lebanon. Shiites, as well as Christians, threw rice and candies, welcoming the IDF as liberators from the hated PLO, which had terrorized southern Lebanon. But it wasn't just terrorized villagers who welcomed the Israelis. The president-elect of Lebanon himself had reason to want their superior military capabilities in his corner. Bashir Jamael was a Christian who had long had issues with his Muslim neighbors, both Palestinian and Lebanese, and Israel was drawn to the potential of a rosy future. In which Lebanon's Christian president might broker peace with his southern neighbor. Realists understood that these were dim hopes to pin on Jamael, a controversial figure hated by 60% of his country. But they were outnumbered in Begin's cabinet, which approved the invasion. The thinking went that even if the incursion didn't result in a forever peace with Lebanon, it would at least bring an end to terror attacks from the north. Or as Bagin put it with characteristic flair, When an imperative arises to protect our people from being bled, how can any one of us doubt what we have to do? At first, what we have to do was simply establish a 25-mile buffer zone between PLO bases in South Lebanon and the northern border of Israel. The IDF hit that target quickly, but soon Defense Minister Ariel Sharon agitated to expand the war. The PLO is still there, he argued. Let's march on Beirut and end them now. And Begin, elderly, frail, dependent on Sharon, who he admired mightily, acquiesced. But for the first time in Israeli history, something strange began to happen. As Israeli forces pushed deeper into Lebanon, more and more Israelis massed outside of Begin's window in protest. A bereaved father even wrote Begin a searing letter with this unforgettable line. My beloved son is dead because of your war, not our war, Your war. This was a first for Israel. Remember, Israel is tiny and has historically been surrounded by neighbors intent on flattening it. And it's full of people who fled from unfriendly countries, including some of these neighbors. Not to mention that the vast majority of Israeli citizens serve in the army. Public support tends to be high in times of wartime. The public had never protested an active war before but they were increasingly unconvinced that the incursion into Lebanon was really an act of self-defense fully, an act of the powerless against the powerful. And so, many Israelis withdrew their support quickly. We don't want to die in Beirut, read the posters at the protests outside of Begin's window. More pressingly and poignantly, the public also didn't want to kill in Beirut. No longer a fight between two armies, the war had devolved into guerrilla tactics, ever-shifting targets, and a boatload of civilian casualties. Israel's efforts in Lebanon were a type of asymmetric warfare, a particularly difficult kind of war to fight. It's not just an issue of strong versus weak, powerful against powerless. Andrew Mack, the scholar who coined the term, explains, there is also the question of the morality of the war. When the survival of the nation is not directly threatened, And when the obvious asymmetry in conventional military power bestows an underdog status on the insurgent side the morality of the war is more easily questioned these questions were about to turn into a full-throated condemnation because president jamael the leader who israel had hoped would usher in a new era of peace and diplomacy was assassinated on september 14th 1982 in the third attempt on his life. Habib Shartouni, a fellow Maronite and a Syrian nationalist, confessed almost immediately to assassinating Jamail because he sold the country to Israel. That's a quote. Jamail's death destroyed the Israeli hope of peace with its southern neighbor, not least because of the revenge that Jamail's political party was about to wreak on the country's Palestinians. Never mind that he had been killed by a Syrian, not a Palestinian. Now, a little background about that. Jamal headed a Christian political party known as the Falangist or Kataib party. The Phalangists were founded in 1936 as a paramilitary youth organization whose main activities were resisting the French, the Pan-Arabists, and anyone else they saw as meddling in Lebanese politics or culture. Though they evolved into a more traditional political party after Lebanese independence, more concerned with elections and voting than with violence. The Phalangists never lost their paramilitary arm. And that paramilitary arm got quite a workout during the bloody years of Lebanon's civil war. It was the Phalangists who opened fire on a bus carrying 22 Palestinians in 1975. According to New York Times article from the next day, the bus carrying the Palestinians was coming from a rally organized by a guerrilla group to celebrate the first anniversary of the guerrilla attack on the Israeli border town of Kiryat Shmona. But, if the phalangists wanted the Lebanon scrubbed of foreign intervention, why would they ally with Israel, the region's pariah? According to a 1975 article in the journal Middle Eastern Studies, conservative phalangists believed that the prime and direct menace is from radical Arab states and the Palestinian resistance. The enemy of my enemy, etc., etc. So, we have a political party with a military wing and a history of violence. It is allied with Israel. It really hates the PLO, seeing them rightfully as a foreign group trying to intervene in Lebanon's already fraught politics. And its leader has just been assassinated by a Syrian, another group whose influence the phalangists sought to resist. In short, we've assembled all of the ingredients for a massive fashla, the Israeli term borrowed from the Arabic for disaster. The day after Jamal's assassination, the Israelis rolled into West Beirut. Begin insisted that incursion into Beirut was to, quote, keep the peace, otherwise there could be pogroms. Israel's prime minister proved to be prescient, but unfortunately, not prescient enough because the Israeli presence in West Beirut did not deter the two-day pogrom that followed Jamal's assassination. You see, the West Beirut neighborhoods of Sabra and the adjacent Shatila refugee camp were full of palestinian civilians and refugees though the Phalangists and the idf believed that the plo was also using the camps as a base of operations so the israelis surrounded sabra and shatila sending in roughly 150 Phalangists to mop up the terrorist plo forces but the Phalangists did a lot more than just mopping up and they didn't stop with plo operatives if you're squeamish Again, skip ahead by around 30 seconds. This is horrible to hear and horrible to say. The Phalanges spent the next two days murdering, raping, and torturing anywhere between 800 and 2,000 refugees, many in horrifying ways. Eyewitnesses reported atrocities like mutilation, castration, scalping, the disemboweling of pregnant women, and the carving of crosses onto people's bodies. According to a 2020 Times of Israel article by Avram Rabinovich who had covered the massacre for the Jerusalem Post, an Israeli soldier who had been stationed outside the camps told him that Christians had used knives so that the Israelis would not be alerted by the sound of gunfire. As it got dark, the phalanginists asked the IDF for flares so they could see what they were doing. The Israelis, seemingly believing them to be hunting terrorists, complied, their flares illuminating horrifying atrocities. However, the Institute for Middle East Understanding, a Palestinian advocacy organization, contends differently, that Israeli forces fired flares into the night sky to illuminate the darkness for the phalanges, allowing reinforcements to enter the area on the second day of the massacre, and provided bulldozers that were used to dispose of the bodies of many of the victims. But tells a different story. He recounts a conversation with the Israeli soldiers who encircled the camps. Once said a phalangist had returned to the intersection during the night to request a stretcher. They had already killed 250 terrorists, the militiaman said. The Israelis thought this was absurd. We know how much firepower we have to use before we kill a handful, and here they're claiming to have killed 250 and there had been almost no shooting. The Israeli soldiers had not been thinking about knives and bulldozers. We laughed among ourselves when he left until someone said, they must be counting civilians. Then we stopped laughing. This quote suggests that the Israelis truly didn't know what was going on. Indeed, Rabanovich recounts that the Israelis themselves had come under RPG and small arms fire at the beginning of the operation. No one imagined that a massacre was going on. Whether this is true is bitterly contested by everyone, including the Israeli public itself. As soon as news of the massacre broke, Hundreds of thousands of Israelis flooded the streets. Some estimates say that 10% of Israel's population came out to demonstrate against the war and the massacre, which many of the people blamed on Israeli leadership and military. They held painfully evocative signs. If I forget sovereign Shatila, may I forget Jerusalem. Sadly, and appropriately enough, the massacre also happened right before Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement and the public reckoning rocked Israel. Rav Yehuda Amital, the head of the yeshiva of Yeshivat Haaretzion, known as Gush, opined that though Jews may not have perpetuated the massacre on religious grounds, they were still ultimately responsible for it. And he condemned it as a sin not even Yom Kippur can cleanse. Rav Amital was not alone in the condemnation. Dr. Yosef Berg, the head of the NRP, the National Religious Party, had opposed the invasion from the first. It's even been reported that Rabbi Joseph Ber Soloveitchik, whose voice you heard at the top of the episode, said in private conversation, we need to add another al-Chayt to the Yom Kippur liturgy, demanding an inquiry into exactly what happened that day in September of 1982. The Israeli public agreed with these religious leaders. The government formed the Khan Commission in February of 1983 to investigate what happened. It's worth noting that though it was clear that Israel did not directly perpetuate the massacre, only Israel established a commission dedicated to uncovering the truth of the massacre. Different Lebanese groups, including the Phalangists who had perpetrated the violence, were perhaps too caught up in the bloody devolution of their homeland to establish any kind of official inquiry, or more likely, they just didn't care enough to investigate the atrocity that they had committed. And perhaps in establishing the commission, Israel was drawing on biblical tradition. Ruth Weiss's 2007 book, Jews in Power, notes that the Hebrew prophets linked a nation's potency to its moral strength, putting the Jews on perpetual trial for their political actions before a supreme judge. Certainly, this was the mood among the protesters who amassed nightly outside of Bacon's window. Now, let's be clear. 1982, Israel was not a theocracy. Its politicians were not prophets, and the Khan Commission was not a supreme judge. But the people demanded justice, understandably squeamish about the fact that hundreds or maybe thousands of defenseless refugees had been butchered by Israeli allies under Israeli noses. The fact that not a single Israeli soldier had entered the camps was immaterial to many, right or wrong, their army had surrounded Sabra and Shatila. Their army had power. The Khan Commission was their attempt to investigate that power. The Khan report found Ariel Sharon indirectly responsible for what happened at Sabra and Shatila. It admits that the IDF entered West Beirut without cabinet approval, but it also reminds the reader of the IDF's marching orders. The refugee camps are not to be entered. Searching and mopping up the camps will be done by the phalangeous Lebanese army. And because no Israelis had entered the camps, It was plausible that soldiers couldn't see what was going on. The con report reads: From the roof of the forward command post, it was possible to see the area of the camps, but as all the witnesses who visited the roof of the command post stated, and these were a good number of witnesses whose word we consider reliable, it was impossible to see what was happening within the alleys in the camp from the roof of the command post, not even with the aid of 20 by 120 binoculars that were on the command post roof. In short, The Khan reports found that the Israelis let the phalanges into the camp. It denies that they saw what was happening, though some contested that claim. And it found that key players failed to stop the massacre once they learned it was happening. Begin, for his part, was unimpressed by the results of the inquiry. He summarized the massacre thus, Goyim killed Goyim and they blame the Jews. The prime minister was already old and sickly, exhausted from the pressures of the war and the recent death of his wife Eliza. He resigned from office in 1983, saying yacholod," or I can't take it anymore. A sad statement for which he would be mocked by left-leaning Israeli satirists. For me, Menachem Begin, who dedicated his life to ensuring that Jews would never be powerless again, is a hero amongst heroes. Even with this black eye in his career. Chief of Staff Rafael Eitan, as per the Khan Commission's report, was already due to retire in April of 1983. So the report arrived at grave conclusions with regard to the acts and omissions of the Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Eitan. We have resolved that it is sufficient to determine responsibility without making any further recommendation. So Eitan finished out his tenure as Chief of Staff. As for Sharon? who the report found to bear personal responsibility, he resigned his position as defense minister. But he remained in the Knesset as a minister without portfolio and went on to become the prime minister less than 20 years later. And yet, despite his hawkish tendencies and his hatred of the PLO, he ended his career pushing for unilateral disengagement from the Gaza Strip in 2005. A complicated man. See our episode on the disengagement for more about that. The link is in the show notes. But perhaps the lesson all three men, as well as Israeli society as a whole, took away from this incident is that asymmetric wars are unwinnable, certainly in the eyes of the international community. Wars that draw protesters to the prime minister's window are worse, and power, well, it should be wielded wisely. Hindsight is 2020, isn't it? It's so tempting to shout from 2021 create a buffer zone, yes, but don't roll into West Beirut. Ally with the phalanges, but don't let them into refugee camps full of people they hate. Or even don't go into Lebanon at all. Build a wall instead. I don't know. It's impossible to say what would have happened if the key players had followed any of this advice, or if Jamal had not been assassinated, or if at the very least the massacre hadn't happened. It's tempting to play with counterfactuals. But I'm not a novelist interested in dabbling in what might have been. I'm a Jewish educator. And all I have here are the facts that actually took place and the lessons we ought to wring from them. So that's the story of Saab and Shatila. Here are your five fast facts. Number one, the PLO was formed in 1964 and its charter was clear. Get rid of Israel. However, Israel isn't the only country the PLO didn't get along with. They also destabilized and terrorized Jordan and Lebanon and were eventually kicked out of both countries, setting up their base of operations in Tunis number two by 1978 israel had had enough of the plo they invaded southern lebanon pushing the plo further back but the attacks on civilians in northern israel kept coming and by 1982 israel went back in with the initial goal of establishing a 25-mile buffer zone to protect the north of the country number three the incursion was a mess and the israeli public turned against the leadership doubting that this quagmire was really a defensive war Number 4. After Israeli ally Bashir Jamal was assassinated, Israelis entered West Beirut. They gave the Phalangist militia free reign to mop up the PLO fighters operating in the neighborhood of Sabra and the refugee camp of Shatila, both of which were full of Palestinian civilians and refugees. The Phalangists responded by massacring hundreds or maybe thousands of civilians. And number 5. Israeli citizens were outraged and the government established the Khan Commission to investigate the massacre, which found that Israel was indirectly responsible for the devastating events of those two days. So those are the facts, but here is one enduring lesson as I see it. As an educator, I think back to this tiny story of my teenage self in Hebrew class innocently asking my Mora about an event that she clearly didn't want to confront. And I get it. The truth is, I think she underestimated me and my classmates though because i believe that our young people have the fortitude the intelligence and intellectual curiosity to explore the toughest questions and questions of power may be the toughest ones of all i'm a passionate zionist i've dedicated my life to teaching others about the state of israel and the jewish people and jewish identity but hagiography is an education and love doesn't mean idolizing our heroes i truly believe that pretending that people are perfect actually paradoxically minimizes them. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, a German rabbi from the 1800s, makes this point about religious heroes in the Bible, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs mimics his words. People are complex, Rabbi Sachs writes. No one in the Torah is portrayed as perfect. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are all punished for their sins. So is King David. Solomon, wisest of men, ends his life as a deeply compromised leader. The Torah is far from hagiography, idolization, and hero worship. This goes double, triple for the leaders of the Israeli state. Because unlike so many in the Bible, they have power. They aren't Abraham forced to curry favor with foreign kings. They aren't Jacob fleeing famine at home to settle in a foreign land. They aren't Moses wandering for 40 years without ever stepping foot into the promised land. No, our modern leaders are a lot more similar to Joshua to David, to Solomon, people who lived in a state of their own, who sometimes signed treaties with foreign leaders, who sometimes fought wars against their neighbors, who commanded armies and held responsibility for casualties, who were motivated often by the need to protect their people and their heritage, who were sometimes deeply flawed. You don't need to be religious to look to the Bible for a lesson in how to wield power, or how not to wield it. Jewish tradition gives us the tools we need to interpret modern Israeli history, to teach our young people to grapple with it and come to their own conclusions. We no longer need to say, Nu Daikvar Kara, Yala, because Mashuhu Ken something did happen. No, it's not weak need self-flagellation to confront our story, rather, confronting our history and choices is the actualization of emerging from an ethical and religious tradition that specifically commands us to confront ourselves honestly. As the Khan Commission demonstrated, the Jewish people now have power. With power comes the responsibility to introspect. And that's what the Jewish people and the Jewish state have been doing since the sui generis moment of the reestablishment of the Jewish state in 1948. And for that, I'm incredibly proud. Thank you all for listening. If you haven't yet, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And help us grow this podcast community by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Give it that five-star rating. It helps. Now it's time for our final segment, Israel's Nerd Talk, where we highlight one of you, our amazing listeners. We get the best emails from you guys, and we want to share them with the world. This week, I'm going to highlight a letter from a listener named Ari. And I like this letter because it really made me think. Here's what Ari wrote. Hi, Noam. Hi Ari, I really enjoyed the latest episode on Operation Thunderbolt. My wife and I watched the 1979 film Every Tish above. Despite watching it every year, it never gets old, and it's more uplifting than a Holocaust movie. What resonates with me year after year is the message that the Jewish people have to look out for themselves because no one else will. That's been true throughout our history. Ad hayom hazeh, meaning until this very day. It's how we survived for thousands of years when much mightier empires, Egyptians, Romans, etc. have not. We've always looked out for and took care of ourselves. As Yoni said in the movie, we are taking on this mission because the hostages are Jews. And if we don't, no one else will. Keep up the great work. Ari, I'm so glad you liked our show and this episode, but I gotta admit that your letter made me kind of sad. I'm not saying you're wrong exactly, but this idea of being set off not because... Judaism stands for something critical in the world, not because we are particularly moral, elevating the world in some way, but more simply because the other nations of the world, well, they make sure we're alone. Well, that made me kind of sad, and I've been thinking about it since receiving your letter. It's something I think about often. Are the Jewish people destined to dwell alone? Is that the nature of what it means to be Jewish? I don't know, and I think about it a lot. I'd love to hear more about what you think. And if other people have thoughts like what Ari wrote, please be in touch with us as well. Please be in touch with me. If you have thoughts, comments, suggestions, ruminations, whatever to share, don't hesitate. Be like Ari. Send us a message at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at jewishunpacked.com. Unpacking Israeli History is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places like TikTok, where all the cool kids are, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for us at Jewish Unpacked. And again, write to us at podcasts at JewishUnpacked.com. Your email might even get in the show. This episode was produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes Adia Albaz, Baruch Goldberg, and Rob Perra. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Thanks for listening. See you next week.